This is Jennifer Lauren from Diamonds and Whiskey, and you are listening to Jay Scott and the Hook Rocks. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Hook Rocks. Once again, I'm your host, Jay Scott. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, great network of music-related podcasts. There's something for everyone, everyone's music taste. There is a great uh, KISS podcast, my friends Tom and Zeus, the number one rated KISS podcast. You can check out uh, the great episodes. They made some news recently with their Chris Jericho episode talking about the Slave to the Grind album and Sebastian Bach, and that kind of popped up all over on Loudwire and Blabbermouth, so congrats to them. Martin Popoff, the rock historian, has a great show on Pantheon, as well as Vinny Apice, Carmen Apice, with promoter Ron Anesti. Just had Ron on, and Carmen, I think, was on over the summer. Uh, the Hanging and Banging podcast, check out that. I've had Mistress Carrie on. She does a great job with her show, as well as Baco on Cobras and Fire, so check out my friends there. Check out PantheonPodcast.com at Pantheon Pods on Twitter and Facebook. Like I said, there's something for everyone, for everyone's musical interest and taste. You can follow The Hook Rocks on Twitter at The Hook Rocks, as well as Facebook. Uh, Check out all the old and new Hook Rocks podcasts. Write us a review. We always enjoy the feedback. Please, uh, whatever platform you do visit, we're on every platform, whether it's Spotify, Apple, and so on. But we do appreciate your feedback, so could take a couple seconds, a couple minutes, and write us a review. We we do definitely appreciate. It. We've had some fantastic episodes recently. We just aired an episode with Hans Braun from Kiss and Dynamite, the German bass band. Their new album just hit number two on the German rock charts, as well as our interview with Scott Gorham from Thin Lizzy, where he talks about putting together a tour later this year with uh, under the Thin Lizzy moniker. So have him discuss that as well as why he left black star writers uh some great recent new music spotlights with georgia thunderbolts scarlet rebels joyous wolf as well as the warning and don't forget to check out our year-end celebration 2021 album review top 30 albums of 2021 where we don't just talk about our top 30 we have contributions from several followers as well as some special contributors like don jameson and matt wake and pete dankelson from pete's diary Uh, 160 albums we discussed almost six hours of discussion two parts all you music nerds that like new music or just want to hear about what you need to be listening to this is definitely the episode for you to check out so please give us a listen don't forget to set your app to automatic download so you get the latest hook rocks podcast right to your phone 
and uh, you can enjoy whatever it is we're talking about. And what we're talking about today is another live album review with Rob in the Hood at the Recividus. You can spell that out. I am, uh, I've given up on spelling that because it's just like even pronouncing it, but hey, let him, let him handle that. Um, but we did originally the Live and Dangerous Thin Lizzy album. Um, I, you know, I love talking about Thin Lizzy and I've done three shows, the interview with Scott Gorman, the interview with Ema Reynolds on the Songs for While I'm Away full lineup documentary. But it all started with Rob when we did the Thin Lizzy live album and a live album review called Live and Dangerous, which um, just a fantastic live album, which was part of that 70s push for artists to kind of break through like Kiss Alive and Peter Frampton and all those other great artists in the seventies that released great live albums. So check that out. I think that was released back in July. I want to say June or July. And then at the, uh, the fourth quarter in the fourth quarter, we did a special Halloween episode where we did the great eighties, probably the, the pinnacle live release of eighties music, uh, live albums with Iron Maiden live after death. That's probably the most recognizable live album in the eighties, or at least probably top two or three, uh, live album and we discussed that and the impact that had on Maiden's career and today we're going to talk about a live album that was released in the early 70s and maybe this is the album that propelled bands to start thinking about a live release because when you think of the albums of this band this is probably the most recognizable album and the one that's talked about the most in their discography, in their career. Uh, it's a band that is heavily influential with a lot of bands that came on in the mid-70s to late 70s, even parts of the early 80s. Uh, it has one of the most recognizable voices in rock history. It also features one of the guitar greats on this album, which was actually probably, I think, his last recording with the band because he shortly uh, left after some musical differences with the lead singer. The band is Humble Pie. The album is Performance, Rockin' the Fillmore, and the guest is Rob in the Hood, where uh, we're going to discuss and break down this great album and the impact that it had on rock and why we enjoy listening to it. What's going on, Rob? How are you? Hey, Jam. Well, as usual, I'm better than some and worse than others, but we're talking about a, a great live rock and roll album, so I'm on the upswing. So how are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. It seems to, uh, the weather seems to be breaking. We're going to get up to a beach weather of 32 degrees today. <laughs> uh, so we got shorts on and we're probably going to be barbecuing and uh, maybe put a tent out and uh, kind of enjoy uh, and relax and uh, enjoy the sunny weather. Other than that, uh, it's great to talk to you again. I always love in doing these episodes. We do these live album breakdowns once a quarter, and I'm pretty happy with the episode that began this with the Thin Lizzy uh, Live and Dangerous into the Iron Maiden Live After Death, and now we're doing Humble Pie. Everyone calls it Live at the Fillmore, but it's actually the correct name is Performance Live at the Fillmore, uh, and we get to break down just why this is so great. And the performance on this is really something that really jumps out immediately when you hear this album. It captures the energy. It captures the essence of the band. It captures the crowd. When you think about the albums that we've covered, 
like I said, Live and Dangerous Thin Lizzy was more or less what bands were doing during that time frame when that came out. A lot of bands who were releasing great studio albums were unable to capture the energy like Thin Lizzy was, like Kiss was. And they, there was a big push in the 70s to release live material. Uh, in large part, I think, because of the album that we're talking about with Humble Pie, the Fillmore, Rock and the Fillmore album. And the second album we did, you know, the, the, the Thin Lizzy album was more of a kind of a, you know, a way to present the band, a way to put the band in front of fans and their performance and capture that. Live After Death was a way to, was, was more like a journey of the Iron Maiden experience because they were very unique to what was happening in that time frame with the glam scene and the MTV generation. This album I look at as a celebration of rock of what was happening in the late 60s, early 70s with Sabbath, Zeppelin, the Stones, and all that. Uh, it features Steve Marriott, the lead singer, who is one of the most recognizable voices. You hear anyone you know, who's who, you know, from Paul Stanley to whomever uh, talk about the importance of Humble Pie. And of course, Peter Frampton, I think this was the last record before he left to go and start his solo career. He obviously knew the importance of a live album. His live album, Frampton Comes Alive, is one of the most pinnacle live albums of the, of the 70s too as well. So there's that connection. But really the performance of this band captured at the Fillmore in New York is breathtaking. It's a celebration. And for anyone who's a rock fan who's kind of glossed, you know, glanced over this album and maybe heard of Humble Pie, knows a couple like 30 Days in the Hole or I Don't Need No Doctor, this is this is an album you should have in your in your record collection. Yeah, and you know, when we 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 had the uh discussion prior to these quarterly live album discussions, we had the the episode where you and I talked about our, our top five favorite live albums. And uh, we both have this album in our list. Um, if recollection serves me, I'm pretty sure I had this as number one. Um, and so it certainly has a significant stature in, in, in history and, and rock and roll live albums. I was, you know, I was doing a little looking and some of the things that I don't usually think about when it comes to this album is it was recorded at the Fillmore East, the venue that, that Bill Graham had in New York. It was like a companion and bookend to his San Francisco Fillmore. And I did not realize um, until I was looking into this that that venue in that form was only open for three years. And if you think about the the pillars of live rock and roll, that one place in those three years produced at least three great live albums um, with this one, with the Allman Brothers, and with uh, Jimi Hendrix, which was the, the band of gypsies that then later became the full live at the Fillmore. Uh, and so that it's, it's amazing that that one place in such a short period of time had such an influence on, on, on rock and roll. And then I looked to see what, what the state of the venue is today. And apparently the front part of it's a bank and the back part of it is like condos or something. <laughs> Cause we always need more of that. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, that makes me sad. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking about when did I first come across this album? Um, and I knew, I knew Peter Frampton was in, in the seventies. Um, as a kid growing up, I was starting to listen to rock and roll music right when Frampton Comes Alive was all over the airways. And that's all you could hear. Uh, and of course, I was very much aware and saw the Sgt. Pepper 
uh, production that he was in. But then in, in high school, probably about, I want to say it was probably my sophomore year in high school, I was visiting a friend's house whose dad had this on vinyl, had the Humble Pie album on vinyl. And I was looking at it and I saw Peter Frampton. And I was like, so there's more to him than, than what I know about that I'm hearing on the radio. And he played some. I was like, man, this is serious rock and roll. This is cool stuff. Yeah, I, I would even go as far as his performance on this album blows away the performance on Frampton Comes Alive. I agree. There's, there's a rawness in his playing. There's a sense of adventure in his playing on this that I think uh, he, Frampton's a great guitar player, and I don't want to take anything away from him on that. You know, especially Frampton Comes Alive, again, is his most popular album when you think of, you know, the live albums that were released in the 70s. But there's just a sense of wonder in his playing on this. And, you know, you forget back in those times, there wasn't a lot of tricks in terms of the technology. Those tricks that they did were developed in the plane, not what was, you know, plugged in or input output or whatever was going in and coming out of the of the amp. So, you know, the plane was just so phenomenal on this, the energy that he has in this plane it's a shame that this i think was his last performance with the band or close to it because shortly before the release he had already left the band i believe and it was released you know after after he left but um it's just a a monumental moment in a band that really didn't do a lot of their own material you know i think there's only one original song on this album the rest are all either blues or R&B numbers that they kind of dressed up themselves. And that was kind of really popular back then. You know, bands were doing that. They were taking blues numbers. And I mean, we talk about Led Zeppelin all the time. There's no better example than Led Zeppelin taking a blues number and either officially or unofficially making it their own song. And they did. We could talk about the lawsuits that Zeppelin had, but all those songs are Zeppelin songs, I consider, you know, whether it's the Willie Dixon song or the, you know, Babe, I'm going to leave you Joan Baez song. They were all Led Zeppelin, you know, you know, in the, in the style. And, you know, whether it's the, the song, I don't need no doctor or uh, was it three day creep? I want to say four day creep, four day creep. Um, You know, those songs are all, humble pie uh style you know you think of the ray charles song hallelujah i love her so they're all you know they none of the none of the original versions sound like the way they played it so that's kind of really a humble pie song but yes it was popular to take blues numbers back then because all those bands that came out in the 60s and 70s were all influenced by american blues artists so they were playing this and they, of course, Zeppelin was the one that came along and you could kind of say Humble Pie was, you know, came along around the same time as did Sabbath. And they all had that background of the, of the American blues players. But there's not a live performance from any of those bands that were doing it that really took those songs and, and, and you could feel that energy. I mean, there's an Ashford and Simpson. I don't need a doctor is the, 80s contemporary artist Ashford and Simpson song. I mean, when you think of the guy that looked, I mean, he looked like a lion, right? I mean, he had the kind of had that long hair with the, with the goatee and, 
you yeah. know, and, and, uh, I remember them being on solid gold. One of their songs is on this <laughs> album. I don't need no doctor. That was later, um, covered by wasp and probably several other artists too, as well. That's an Ashford and Simpson song yeah. that the energy that humble pie put into that, you can't describe it. You can't put that any other way than to just be happy that they were able to do that. Well, you know, I, I was actually a little bit amused because recently there's been a conversation in our, our discussion group about cover bands and the fact that this album is so meaningful to you and yet it's mostly cover stuff. Now, I, I totally agree with you that, the, that Humble Pie has a, um, an approach to the songs that, 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 that takes the original spirit of the song and morphs it into a true rock and roll song when, when the songs weren't really... Uh, from that origin but but they are with the exception of the one completely original song well that's that's sort of debatable i guess i'll get into that in a minute but um it's it's mostly a cover album (laughs) it is no that's a great you know we i've always shared my thoughts and about tribute bands cover bands I, i don't have a problem with a tribute band because you're taking the spirit of the band and you're making it into like a continual performance with either the way they dressed or a certain era or the you know the songs that they're performing and they, they try to emulate the band that they're that they're giving a tribute to. I think that's cool, especially if you can't see that period of music again. You know whether it's a Motley Crue tribute band dressing up like the Shout the Devil period, or you know a, a Led Zeppelin tribute or a Queen tribute where they're dressed up like a certain period. Although, like I did mention in our discussion, there is a Led Zeppelin tribute band with two guitar players, which. I don't know what the hell you're doing. <laughs> like, what are you doing with I, with two guitar players in a Led Zeppelin tribute band? You know, that takes away from the whole thing of Led Zeppelin, right? I mean, I don't even want to get into it because it's a whole other discussion. <laughs> but then there's the the cover bands, which is basically a, a, a living jukebox that are with musicians that are good musicians, but are killing from my, I, I think, cover bands are really kind of killing the the original music scene in all cities because they're taking they're 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 allowing people who want to hear something familiar to go and gravitate towards that rather than going and exploring new music um of course everyone on a friday night is going to want to go see this tribute band or i'm sorry cover band this cover band that and what I find really bothersome is I know that like there's people that go and follow these cover bands from club to club. And I just don't understand it. I don't. Well, as as someone who plays in a cover band, I want to, (laughs) it's fine if you're playing in a bar and and whatever. And it's, and it's, it's fine, you know, but like when there's, and then, and, and then like, there's these, this fandom that like follows these cover bands from like show to show and then you get the bands on stage that take themselves way too serious. Yeah, that's not the point. The point is to the point is having fun playing music. Right. Actually, like, I think there's yeah. a, there's a distinction. I, I think, um, even though I have a little bit different point of view from you, I think there's a distinction in this album, which is mostly covers, in that they're taking music and probably exposing it to a different audience from sure, where the music sure. was originally. And so yeah. you're not getting people flocking to hear just a repeat of the original version of the song you're getting a lot more exposure and broadening the appeal of the song 
Yeah, I think that's a great point because back then there wasn't social media, there wasn't the internet. Um, so a lot of people wouldn't know, I don't need no doctor, or they wouldn't know four yeah. day creep, yeah. or they wouldn't know the Rachel son. So yeah, it's exposing people that maybe wouldn't know these songs and making it really their own. That's always the thing that I always liked about Zeppelin and, you know, Humble Pie. And you could talk about the Jeff Beck group who did this too as well, quite frequently, is they took songs that were by, you know, other art artists like uh, Going Down by the Jeff Beck group, you know, as a Freddie King song. And, you know, they make it their own too as well. And I, and I appreciate that more than just playing the standard cover of the song that sounds just like the band plays, you know? And I yeah. also think there's also an element too where a band like Humble Pie and Zeppelin, they're making albums. They're, 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 they're putting this on albums and they're recording it, you know, rather than just, you know, play it on the weekends or, or whatnot, whatever they do. I just think that there's, there, at that time, because of the, the blues that was influenced them, you know, there was also, what was the, um, the band that Mick Taylor was in before he, the, the Blues Breakers, uh, John Mayhall's mm-hmm. Blues Breakers was another one that comes, comes to mind that was from this period that uh, there was a, a love for the music that they wanted other people to hear because it was moving them so much. I mean, without these blues greats, there was never going to be a Humble Pie. There was never going to be a Zeppelin. There was never going to be a Jeff Beck group. You can go on the whole list of all those artists that were, um, that were inspired by them. And this album really captures that live performance of that bands were doing at that time that just jumps out of the vinyl, jumps out of the speakers that you're listening to. The energy is captured. That's what I love about these live albums back in the day, because I'm sure they had to go in the studio and clean some of the stuff up. I know people, you know, obviously the drums you can't really clean up, but the energy that is just, that just jumps out of you yeah. as a listener. Um, maybe that's why they stopped making the live albums because I don't know if the bands of current day or during other periods could really have that happen. Um, well, I, I suspect that these days with the technology that's available to everyone, it is probably much, much easier to produce a pretty polished studio sounding album based off these devices that we're using right now. Whereas with a live album, you can't do that. You have to have the sound really dialed in. And, you know, the sound on this album is just tremendous. Um, I started thinking about, you, you mentioned, you talked about the fact that Frampton left the band <clears throat> shortly after this. And I, I was thinking, this is an album that really captures a moment in time. And I thought, I'm pretty sure I almost said the same words when we were talking about the Thin Lizzy album, but you're talking about a band that is right at its peak before things changed. And, and by the time that this album was released, which was in November of 71, um, which was eight months after it was recorded uh, in March at the Fillmore East. By the time the album was released, the venue had closed and Frampton had left the band. And so this was like the last time you could really capture the spirit of, of the band as it was playing here. I had a conversation. I was, I was thinking about our, what we were going to be talking about. And I was, I was speaking to one of my colleagues at work um, who's a couple of years older than I am and it has a pretty deep knowledge about rock and roll from like the seventies and so forth. And I was trying to articulate to him what it is about this album 
that I love so much. And I think it really comes down to like three different areas. One is the, the tone of the guitars. And Frampton has always been a, 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 a tone chaser, I think, by his own admission. Um, when you listen to this album, this is when I take a Les Paul and I plug it into a Marshall amp, this is how I want it to sound. This is like the ideal. It has like real power behind it. You can feel through those tube amps. Um, it has warmth. It also has clarity. And, and Frampton's pretty famous for that, that sound of having real uh, power, but clarity to his playing as well. And the, the guitars really meld together really well between Frampton's guitar and Marriott's guitar. Um, the second is the, the drums. Um, you mentioned a moment ago about the, the issues with how difficult it can be to capture drums in a live setting. And the drums on this album sound fantastic. Um, I, I don't know what magic is used to, to record this. It made me look up who the recording engineer, which was Eddie Kramer on this album. I thought this guy's some sort of wizard that these drums sounded this way. Um, and the, the third area that I think that really makes it shine is the balance and how it was mixed because you can hear each instrument and each voice very clearly on this album. Um, they all stand out. None of them dominates the other. Um, they're all perfectly playing in complement with one another. Um, I don't think you can say enough about uh, Greg Ridley's bass playing that he doesn't get talked about a lot when you talk about bass players and his bass playing is just incredibly good. And so the whole thing comes together and creates this, this sound that's like magic in about 72 minutes or so. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Eddie Kramer, of course, probably most recognizable for the work that he did with kiss. And I, you know, he, he was the one that I believe produced alive by them too. So when you, know that history of humble pie into kiss i'm sure there's more that we could talk about eddie kramer but that's interesting you know that you capture the energy the mix and how they capture the drums and each instrument and also let's not forget about capturing the crowd um which is which is so defining with a live album and the energy when you have that pushback and that synergy and you capture that synergy with the crowd with the live band it elevates the live album um, in so many ways. It, it really does add that lost element that, I mean, we think about the albums that we've talked about, right? Live and Dangerous, Live After Death, and now this. All of those albums have a huge crowd presence where you feel that crowd, where you feel like you're part of the show. And that is so important, important to listening to a live album and getting that experience is you feel like you're there. You feel like you're amongst the screaming people at the show. And also what I think is important about this album is when you think about the time that this album was recorded and the time that Humble Pie existed, obviously they went on and made other albums. But that period of music is so important to the history of rock and roll right? You think about those bands that obviously there was the Beatles and the Stones and the, and the British Invasion, uh, the Animals and the Kinks and all those bands. And then there was that next wave of the Sabbaths and the Purples and the Humble Pies and um, Free and Zeppelin. Uh, you know, the Jeff Beck group all came after that first initial wave. They were more, obviously the Stones and all those, the Beatles were influenced by those great blues greats, Chuck Berry, 
all, you know, Howlin' Wolf, all that stuff, Muddy Waters. But the, the way that came after them, I think, is equally important to that first wave because that took it into more of a rock tone. You know, the Beatles, obviously, you can call them pop music now, which they were not considered pop music back then. They, they, they actually invented pop music. Um, with their with their first albums and you know and that and then they got more experimental as they moved forward. The Stones were essentially a cover band when they first came over and they developed into this blues rock band, but they were mostly blues based and they remained blues based. All these other bands were, but there was more of that hard rock edge to it, right? It, it kind of became, you know, that blues rock on steroids. You think of all those influential bands. Getting back to my point though is. This live album is so important to that period of music because I don't think out of those bands we just talked about, there is a live album that came out of that late 60s, early 70s that captured what was happening in these places like the Fillmore, like the Whiskey, all these places, these small clubs that was building and building and building. Zeppelin never released a live album. I mean, of course, you can call songs remain, the song remains the same. But that does not capture the energy of Zeppelin at all. That's why I'm so into their bootlegs, because there's not a live album that does them any, any, or does them all a disservice. That's, that song remains the same, does them a total disservice of what they were. And then they released How the West Was Won, gosh, what, 10 years ago or 10 plus years ago, where that actually did capture, but not when they were around and at their, at their peak. This really captures the moment in rock history or what those bands were doing, the rawness, the, the direction rock music was going. I can't think of a live album in the late 60s, early 70s. Maybe Hendrix Live at Monterey captures that. Um, but I can't think of, of another one that does that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the, um, the role that the audience plays in it. And I pulled out my, my, uh, my CD here because I was looking at the liner notes earlier, and it actually may not be as discernible on the CD as it is on the LP. Um, there is a, there's, there's a lot of like picture shots from the, the, the shows that were used. And there's one somewhere that amongst it's like included in the credits that it says, and a cast of thousands. Yes. And I think that really speaks to what you're talking about to how much of a role the audience plays and becomes part of the, the performance. And, and I was thinking about, I saw a documentary on the making of this album and I don't recall where I saw it. I'm guessing it might have been VH1 since they've done a lot of those type of things. And a lot of the um, voice of the band that's heard throughout it is the is, is Jerry Shirley, the, the drummer, um, who was interviewed for part of it. And if I'm remembering correctly, he tells the story of they recorded it, they listened to the recordings, they mixed it, and they thought, we know we have something really special here. We can, we can hear it all gelling. Um, you can t- definitely listen to this. This is, a, this is a band playing as a unit, how they're so in tune with each other. Uh, but he said, and then we thought, something's wrong. And they had forgotten to include the track for the audience in the original mix. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't hear the audience, even though it was there. And then they, had, they went back and they, and they added it. And it's the audience from the show. And you, that's very clear from listening to the show, because especially during... Um, uh, Rolling Stone, there's 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 interplay between Marriott and and the audience. Uh, so I think it's really interesting that 
they came to realize how much or how important that audience factor was in pre presenting a live album. I think that is the essence of a live album. I, I can't imagine a band putting out a live album without the crowd, you know, being mixed in yeah. it and being part yeah. of it because essentially that's what, why bands put out every, every band in the seventies with the exception of probably Zeppelin uh, put out a live album because, you know, I hate to keep going back to kiss and, and, you know, Casablanca records was going to go under and kiss wasn't moving the needle at all with their first three studio albums, but everybody who saw them live was blown away. So when they decided to release a live, first of all, live albums during that period and probably still today are very cheap to make compared to a studio album. Um, but when you have a band like humble pie, who was so electric and connected so much with their fans during a show. I mean, you keep hearing a guy in this, in this album say, sing it, sing it, you know, yeah, yeah. and, and you hear that. And it's just, you, you people, you feel like it's probably a general admission show. Cause that's, you know, the clubs back then and these incredible theaters, incredible clubs playing and having that experience. And, you know, and not having the crowd, that's why you wanted to make a live album was to hear that craziness, to hear that energy yeah. that the crowd was producing and there's nothing better. And when you capture it and the, and the listener, the fan gets the album. And like I said, it feels like they're part of that crowd, which a lot of these albums that we've talked about and will continue to talk about, that is such an important piece of a great live album. Yeah, that yeah, you just, really have to, you know, to have that. And, you know, the song, the album has seven songs. Six of them are covers. There's one original. But you feel like they're Humble Pie songs. You feel the energy. Yeah, you know, I think it's, what, what makes me hesitate about that is that is the first song, Four Day Creep, it's, it's listed as a cover. And in the liner notes, it, it attributes the song to Ida Cox, who was a blues and, and jazz singer um from the earlier part of of the 1900s and but if you listen to her song and you listen to this song they're it's not the same song no no lyrically it's not the same song melodically it's not the same song and i'm sitting there almost wondering the only thing that i can see is similar is the title <laughs> i mean even the even the message of the song you listen to her versions and she's she's it's a warning to another woman about don't take my man mm -hmm. and this this is something else entirely and so it's this is almost a humble pie original under a different title i think <laughs> yeah and and if you listen to that album which i think was the debut album it's on their debut the self-titled album uh four day creep uh that whole album to me you know you can you can i think their albums there's there's smoke it and or eat it rather i think it is uh -huh. um the albums that came after this or before it i think their debut album really does capture is the closest thing to the energy that's on yeah. the album. you know yeah, if you listen if you listen to like uh town and country um it has a much which is a studio album that predated this album and the original lineup it, it has a much mellower approach um and you don't get that real energy that you feel in this type of performance. You know, when Four Day Creep starts off, you get you get a really good sample of what this band is all about because you have Frampton's incredible playing. You get, I think, you get vocals 
from all three vocalists in the band because um, uh, Marriott and, and Frampton trade off uh, verses as they do in a lot of songs, but then Greg Ridley comes in at some point and he frequently does that where you'll hear him a piece of him in some songs. He didn't have that same tenor range that the other two had. He really hit the baritone range, but he definitely played a vocal role. Um, and so I think that the 48 Creep is a good start to the to side one and uh, telling you what this band is all about. I think I'm, you know, I may have made a mistake. I don't know if Four Day Creep is on any album that they did uh, outside of this. I think this was just some blues numbers they wanted to play, um, but it's just a fantastic version of of the song. And then into yeah. I'm Ready, which uh, again, you know, the music, Peter Frampton, and they also give credit to Willie Dixon as well on this. And I have to say, Steve Marriott's performance on this, you know, we talk about Frampton's, which is absolutely fantastic, but Steve Marriott, who I don't think gets enough credit with the bands that were coming out, you know, you talk about free and talk about Zeppelin, Paul Rogers, Robert Plant, um, and some of the others, Steve Marriott just has this gosh, like, like, um, incredible voice. It's just so, down and dirty he has you know if, if you want to get a and powerful the, the first time that i heard ichiku park from his stint with the small faces you know you're listening to the song and you're thinking oh this sounds like a 60s poppy kind of song until he hits that line where he says and i got high and he's it's like he just bursts out of the song and you really get the feeling this is this is a rock and roll voice here and he really defines things through his voice he's like this little powerhouse of rock and roll um between his it's like he gives everything during the, the performance I, I dig the way that i'm ready starts off with like a that vocal guitar kind of call and response um that goes on um I think that the, that I'm ready is also a, a great example of the band playing as a band. And they are so in sync with one another. Cause there's like, there's a, there's, there's a place or two in the song where there's a, a rest for a beat where not even the drum is keeping anything, you know, even a hi-hat and the band comes all back in simultaneously and you, you can feel that energy flowing between them. Um, and then there's like interesting parts in the song where there's a, um, kind of break where everything drops out except for the drums and, and Frampton does a repeated eighth note over and over, but it, it's such, it's so different from the rest of the song that it grabs the listener and pulls them back into the song. I'm going to start fanboying on here in a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can really make that period of music. We, you know, we, again, we talk about the bands, but the voices, the singers in those bands that were around in that period, the plants, and you know Gian from Deep Purple and Steve Marriott, even Rod Stewart, you know, part of the faces, and then Jeff Beck group too as well, and then his solo stuff. Um, Ozzy Osbourne, who has that emotional, um, different voice than what were you know some of the others had, where the other ones were more power. Well, not Stewart, but definitely Gian Plant and um, Paul Rogers and Marriott kind of had that power um you can really make that period the 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 era of the influential singers i mean when yeah. you think about all those guys that came out not just performance wise but stage presence wise you know look how many people emulate 
you know, th- th- those singers. The only ones that I really think of that had that beyond this period, you know, was Freddie Mercury. Queen came along in 73, I think it was. And, and Steven Tyler, another, another 73, 74 band. Um, you know, Paul Stanley, you can put in that, you know, he, he was more kind of that theatrical with the kiss, with the faces, but uh, um, just in terms of stylistically, that period really defined that era of music. And then what came for decades, even today, you hear those, those influences and the way people perform. And that really started the era of, of the front man. You know, obviously Jagger was, was, is so, you know, incredibly definable and influential with the way he moved. And he, he never really had the greatest, range and singing voice because he was basically a bluesman i mean muddy waters basically told him how to sing the blues but those guys that came after you know just power and and just style they had they had a sense of style with the way they approached the music and presented their lyrics uh that still resonates today and when you hear steve marriott sing on this album you know that high you know those high notes he plays and just how he can go from, you know, the range that he, that he play. And while he's playing to an instrument, um, which out of all those guys I mentioned, I don't think, I think he was the only one that, that I can think of right now. You can also probably put, um, uh, oh gosh, what's his name from mountain. Um, Leslie West. Yes. Leslie West yeah. in that too, as well. It's, yeah, it's just a great period for what, you know, what the beginnings of, the great rock bands, uh, obviously yeah. Beatles, Stones, and, and those bands, but this really moved the needle forward into what we know as hard rock and heavy metal. Yeah. One, of, one of the things I really like about speaking, speaking of the vocals, one of the things I really like about this album is, is Frampton's vocals on the album. They have a, you're used to hearing a lot of his vocals have a much clearer um, tone to them that that's not quite as like from the gut. It feels like, um, especially on his solo stuff, at least in the seventies, but on this album, and it may just be because from playing live and he may have had a little bit of hoarseness too, but he has a much more of an, uh, like a, just a slight raspiness to some of the vocals, which I think lends itself to, to the rock and roll sound that you're hearing. And so I, I like his vocals on this um, a great deal. Yeah, it really does. And again, there's some great albums too. Uh, Smokin' Rock, Rock On are great albums by um, Humble Pie. Smokin' is probably, and there was, an, you know, there was a Eat It Too as well. So you've got 30 Days in a Hole, which is probably their big number. That's on Smokin'. Right, and, which is post-Frampton, actually. Yes, yes. Which, um, if you really dive into their catalog, if you like Purple, and you like Zeppelin, and you like you know, bands from that era and you haven't dived into Humble Pie's catalog and you'll, you'll, you'll really enjoy it. I mean, yeah, and I, th- I think that, that people often don't give enough credit to Clint Clemson, who was Frampton's uh, successor in, in Humble Pie, because mm-hmm. I think he is a great player as well. And, and the band uh, had, I mean, Smokin' is a, is a really good album. Um, and I, I wish that Frampton had continued with the band, but, but Clint Clemson was no slouch when it, when it came to it. Um, yeah yeah yeah. it's it's just amazing that uh even 30 days in the hole was recorded live you know i mean it was they weren't a band that really 
you know, is known for their studio work. A lot of their stuff yeah. is, and, and that's a testament to who they were as a live band that there was nothing you could do to record them and capture their sound. They had to be yeah. seen and heard live. Uh, yeah, just a fantastic, uh, you know, you also got to include free in that, uh, in that period too, as well. And obviously Paul Rogers went on a bad company, um, going into the, you know, from I'm ready into stone cold fever, which is the only original song that appears on the album. And, you know, one of the other things I want to touch on too, Zeppelin was really known for this. And I think every band too, as well, their live performances of, of a song were, were long you know i'm ready checks in at eight and a half minutes stone cold fever was over six which knowing the temperature of music back then and knowing what was on radio pretty much because of the beatles and stones was you know two and a half to three and a half minutes you know that was the standard songs and then you've got the you know zeppelin's known for these 40 minute versions of whole lot of love which are just absolutely insane but you see like humble pie do eight minute versions of, you know, their, their, their songs, like, like I'm ready, which was a, you know, Willie Dixon and stone cold fever, six minutes. Yeah. Um, and we we're going to get into the next song too, which was on side two, which takes up all side two in the original vinyl, but this was their orig- only original song, stone cold fever, which is a, tran- a fantastic song. But again, the common theme, capturing that energy, capturing who they were as a band that, uh, you really get a great appreciation for what this band meant to rock and roll history. Yeah. Stone Cold Fever, um, I think is one of the things that really appeals to me about the song is there's a lead break in it where it, it kind of shifts the feel of the song into kind of a, I don't know, my, my knowledge of, of music theory is not exceedingly deep, but it's kind of like a dominant seventh. And then Frampton plays all these kind of jazzy licks, but you can tell it's him playing. He has a very distinctive both tone and style and playing. And I, do you know who Rick, Rick Beato is? Not familiar. Okay, if um, since your since your son is, is playing guitar, uh, if he hasn't already started watching Rick Beato's YouTube videos, I highly recommend it. He's 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 a uh, musician and producer um, whose knowledge of music theory is deep and he has a really good interview with peter frampton who he says is one of his heroes that he did probably a couple of years ago and he talks about some of um, frampton's modality choices and the way he plays but you can always there's something about his phrasing that, that you can always hear that's Frampton. where you hear it and you're like oh that's that's a frampton lick um it's a very defined uh way of playing even when he changes styles and that comes across in Stone Cold Fever. And the song goes from this kind of jazzy lead area, which I'm really, I really think that it influenced or probably influenced Tommy Boland when he did post toasty, which has that long lead break that has that same kind of jazzy feel. And then it comes back into this really riff driven rock. Um, and it's a really good way to close out uh, side one of the album. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I have to check that guy out. Um, yeah, again, you know, the, this first side really does, if you weren't listening to Humble Pie back then and you only knew of them in terms of their performance, this is a great uh, first side of the album. Uh, we go into the second side, which is basically one song. I think of this uh, as the Chris Corradetti side. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Walk on Gilded Splinters, which checks in at 23, just above 23 minutes. And I have to tell you, 
knowing how much Paul Stanley was influenced by Humble Pie and Steve Marriott, when you hear the opening of this song, and you know the Kiss catalog, and you know of a song called I Still Love You, which is, in my opinion, directly lifted from the intro of the song, paying tribute to the great Humble Pie. Paul Stanley has talked about how much he enjoyed seeing Steve Marriott. He saw Humble Pie in concert when he, you know, was obviously Steve, you know, Paul Stanley's from New York. But when you hear the opening riff, I remember hearing this for the first time, like, what song is that? What song is that? And I'm like, I, I had to keep rewinding it when I first heard this album. And it is the opening chords to I Still Love You uh, on the Creatures of the Night album by Kiss. And knowing the connection that Paul has with this band, it totally makes sense. Uh, yeah, this, uh, this song is a, is a Dr. John song. Um, mm-hmm. but if, if you listen to the Dr. John version, it's, it's very, you, you, it's got like new Orleans oozing all through it. And this is, this is a much different approach, even though it, it's, it's, it's pretty true to the theme of the original song. It is, it is definitely a much more of a hard rock approach. And I think it's really cool. You talk about the intro, it has kind of a Baroque feel almost to, to some of the, the beginnings where Frampton is playing. And then Marriott comes in with like a, a, a real bluesy approach to things and then they really get into the song. Um, I totally dig. I, I'm a sucker for a double time. And there's a little double time section in this song with cowbell that's in the mix. I mean, of course, I'm going to like be sucked into that. Uh, Always song, need more but, cowbell. Yeah. <laughs> the song really, when I was talking about Greg Ridley's bass playing, there's a, a point in this where it's really featuring him. And you can hear how his sense of melody really um, drives his bass playing and how he's always keeping the groove, but he throws in uh, little fills and licks that changes things up without losing the sense of the song. And I was like, his bass playing is just incredible. Um, and then there's towards the end, there's, there's almost a, it, it sounds to me like there's almost an homage to Mississippi Queen that's in there. Uh, there's like, like that main riff that's, that's part of the song you were talking about, Leslie West earlier. And so this song kind of just weaves its way through a tapestry of rock and roll on the entire side of the album. And I don't care what Chris says. I love long songs. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, especially when they take you on a journey and there's different parts to the song. Like there's three songs yeah. in one, you know, like I've never heard a long song. I can't think of one at the top of my head where it's the same thing all the way through. Right. Because there's a lot of changes. You know, you think of 2112, you know, you think of there's like four songs in 2112. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you think of this song, you think of the medleys that Zeppelin would do live with either Whole Lot of Love or Dazed and Confused. And I, I love the journey. I love the what I'm what's in store for me, the fan, the listener for what they're going to do. Cause you know, it's, you know, how it begins is not how it's going to end and right. all the stuff that's in between. So yes, the, the, when you see the timestamp, it can be intimidating. You're like, <laughs> Oh man, 23 minutes. But when you listen to it, it's, it's, you just close your eyes, put the overhead earphones in, you know, and just listen by the time it's done, you've, you felt like you're in a different place. Yeah, you felt, even if you're even if you're laying on the couch and you got and you're listening you feel like you're on a different couch you feel like you're in a different house <laughs> because the song has taken you away yeah. 
with the journey. And I dig that. And, you know, listen, he's from Colorado. He likes to ski a lot. (laughs) And and maybe the elevation uh, in Colorado makes Chris, uh, you know, does something to his brain where he can't pay attention long enough. Well, you know, I, I grew up there and my first exposure to this album was in Colorado. So I don't think that's it. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. All right. Maybe, you know, maybe. Before we leave this song, um, there is another very, very good um, Humble Pie live album. That's live 69 at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Mm-hmm. And it has maybe my favorite medley. I'm not sure it's fair to call it a medley. It's really one song just blending straight into another song. Uh, the first half of it is the sad bag of shaky Jake, which is my favorite humble pie song song overall. And it blends into, I walk on Gilbert's point. So you're talking about a really long set there. And the only thing that prevents me from liking that album more than this one is that there's a key Greg Ridley vocal in sad bag of shaky Jake that is almost lost on that recording. I don't know if he backed away from the mic or just didn't quite catch it. So it's very faint, but it is, it's integral to the song. And then there's a, a note uh, in Walker and Gilded Splinters. I'm pretty sure is a Marriott note that it's, it's either bent just a little bit flat or the guitar is slightly out of tune. And, and so it, it, it kind of hangs there. So the overall sound quality of this makes this to me a superior rendition, even though I love the other one too. Yeah, I, I don't think there's there's a few live albums by Humble Pie that have came that came out after you know they they had broken up or when they were no longer in existence, and there were a couple that came out afterwards too as well. There's also an extended live at the Fillmore, which I believe captures. I think they played here two nights and they did two performances each day. Yeah. I believe, yeah, and they I capture all four performances. Um, that's the extended version. You can get it, you know, on Amazon or wherever you get your music. I think the price is about 60 bucks, but it can't, you know, there's some similar songs on each. It's kind of cool to hear the differences on each because back then no band played the same way in, in any performance, which some bands prefer that, that technical and being able to match the, what the, what's on the album versus live. And I think there's, there's a, there's a, there's room for that kind of stuff. But I always enjoy hearing the improvisation, the rawness, you know, and, and, and from that period, it really fits that period because that's, that's what it was, you know, like whether it's Jeff Beck, whether it's Marriott Frampton, Page, Hendrix, any of those guys that were part of that period, man, they, 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 they weren't as sharp as maybe what the album sounded like, but the performance that you got that maybe wasn't on the album. That's why people went to those shows because they wanted to hear what those guys were going to do that differed from the album. Um, That's one of the the reasons I love live music so much is because it's that sense of the unexpected. Right. And the adventure that you're going on with the musician. That's that really draws me in. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's great to hear people match that sound that's on an album, but Man, when you can have a guy just go off and take and go somewhere and you go along with him, that's something special. I, yeah. I, I think those bands from this period really were great at capturing, or those albums were really great at capturing those, those bands that were improvising that, you know, that's one of the reasons why Zeppelin was not able to continue without Bonham was because the way they knew each other so well that they could do anything they wanted live 
because they knew how each other played that putting someone new into that situation never would have worked. It never would have been what the band was. And, and um, there's something to be said about that, but yeah, this, this song is, uh, is a tremendous 23 minute journey. Uh, It's, it's absolutely incredible. And takes up the whole second side. I walk on Gilded Splinters, Dr. John album. And Dr. John really, his peak in popularity was the 70s. Um, he recently passed away, I believe, last year or within the last couple of years. Very recently, yeah. Very, if, you, if there's a sound, if there is a, a, an artist or musician that defines the sound of New Orleans, it's Dr. John. So if you have a chance to check out his catalog too as well, some great stuff there. Um, and uh, as long as, you know, as well as Muddy Waters, who uh, on the next song on side three is Rolling Stone, which is a 16 minute journey. Uh, this is, could be the reason why the Rolling Stones are named the Rolling Stones because of this song in the yeah. Muddy Waters. And, and they do a great job of covering it and making it their own too, as well. Uh, Steve Marriott's vocals on this are absolutely awesome. Frampton's playing on this is absolutely incredible. Uh, so sides two and three are, are really, they, they really take you to a different place. Yeah, this, this, this is, it's a 1950 Muddy Waters song. And this version of the song is more than five times as long as Muddy Waters version of the song. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that's, that's kind of remarkable about it is that it is, it's a slow song. The tempo is very low and it's hard to play slow, um, especially live you walk into any guitar center and you listen to, to somebody noodling around on a guitar and playing a song and they're almost always playing it too fast. And, and part of it is adrenaline and part of it's knowing that people are listening and nervousness. And so it takes real discipline to play something this slow. But what's remarkable about this version of the song is that it is slow without plodding. It's more like a brooding kind of, of slow than it is. It doesn't feel like it's dragging, even though it takes quite a while to get to where it's going. It also has that audience participation point where Marriott has the audience saying Rolling Rolling Stone in the background while he's continuing on. And uh, and then there's the the only point on this album where I can point to something that's been dubbed in, and it's because they censored the word shit out of the the song. Um, Other than that, I cannot hear, I mean, I don't have the, the most developed ears for this kind of thing, but I can't hear where an overdubbed guitar has been punched in on this album. It feels like it's the real performance. And so I can only point to that bleep as being something that was afterwards. And then they, at, towards the end of the song, they, they kind of interpolate the, uh, the Righteous Brothers, My Babe song, which everybody, uh, I think many people are familiar with the Foghat version of the same song. And they kind of put that in at the tail end and kind of picks things up for a little while. And then it goes back to the end of the song. Yeah, no, um, hearing this. And then you know, I think on some of the other performances that they did on the extended version, uh, like you said, it's, it's really hard to play a slow yeah. riff and to play a slow song because to temper that energy that you have as a band uh, is difficult. And, you know, a band that had that feeds off that, but it's a nice, um, I don't want to say break in the performance because everything to that is such so powerful. And this is too, as well. I think, I think the way they present it is powerful, but to have a 16 minute song, played like this there is there is a level of difficulty that i don't think yeah. is appreciated by a lot of music yeah. fans yeah then um, we get to 
side four where we actually have two songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it starts with the Ray Charles song, Hallelujah, I Love Her So, which uh, great version. Again, a humble pie version of Ray Charles. But, uh, you know, when you think of the artists that are covered, whether it's Willie Dixon, whether it's Dr. Jem, Muddy Waters, and now, you know, Ray Charles, I mean, they're pulling from artists that influenced them. And when you think of how this music came to be in the UK, without social media, without the internet, it's a very, very under, underappreciated, you know, way people absorb music and people received music because, you know, you think about back in those times in the mid sixties and, you know, how are they getting this stuff? How are they finding this stuff in record stores? And I think there were some radio stations in the UK that really kind of honed in, which really spawned that popularity of hearing American blues, but the way the English took to it, these English musicians is, is a great example of what this album is about. Again, you know, we talk about the performance, we talk about the energy capturing that music. That music was American blues and R&B, and, and uh, they really do pay tribute on this album to some, you know, three of the greatest artists of all time. Yeah, the original version of this song, if you go back and listen to it, it actually has almost a uh, kind of a big band swing feel to mm-hmm. it. Um, and, and they've clearly converted it to the rock and roll world. Um, and then at, at the tail end of this song, they have kind of like a jazzy shuffle breakdown that, that gives it another flavor entirely. Uh, and so, but yeah, the, the roots and, and where like the, the music came from America, went to England, came back to America, and it all kind of blends in together and, and comes up with this new rock and roll format. Tremendous. Yeah. And then it uh, goes into its last song, probably 30 Days in a Hole and this one are their two most recognizable songs. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe that there's a studio version of this and any of their albums. I don't think there is. Yeah. No, and, I was and, looking that, yeah, yeah I, I've I've looked at it for for years to try to find the album that this is on, and I don't know if there's a studio version somewhere lying around that they haven't released yet. But when you think of how this song is received and absorbed, and how many bands that this version, because this is another cover song, influenced so many rock bands, and this is one of their most popular songs, and this is a live version, the only way this was ever received by anyone. That in itself is a huge accomplishment, a huge thing when you think of the essence of this band and, and how this song was so powerful, how it impacted so many musicians and how it was so influential because this is a great way to end this live performance. And I first heard this song uh, by Wasp in the mid 80s <laughs> on the inside of the Electric Cir- uh, Circus album. And I was like, wow, this song is badass. And and it wasn't till years later where I actually went back and listened to this version by Humble Pie. And I'm, I think there's a handful of other cover songs that uh, by bands that have or covered, you know, covered by this band or by other bands that have done this song. But man, this song is rock and roll. This version is the rawness, the energy, the power, you know, that, that, that hook that goes while the, while the chorus is going, right. That, that is just so, I mean, we always say, what hooked you on rock and roll? What pulled you in that riff, that, that hook while right into the chorus 
if that doesn't hook you on humble pie and rock and roll, I don't know what you're listening to. Yeah. It's just so defining. It is really defining. They they really took the it was like a piano based Motown feel to the song originally, and mm-hmm. they they took it and made it that riff driven rock and roll. So you know, Ray Charles actually released a version of that song the same year that this came out. Um, but I I think this is the to me it's the definitive version of the song, and we were we were talking about how this album helped bring Humble Pie into the forefront of a lot of listeners and it's one of the few bands that i think are like that where you have the live album is what made them shine and what what caught everybody's attention i mean you have this you obviously have the kiss alive album you have the allman brothers at the fillmore east and then you have cheap tricks live at budokan where i don't think the bands would have been the same had they not had this live performance that was out there for everybody to to, to really connect with yeah I, I know you couldn't have said it better the 70s were the period of live albums and when you look at them chronologically i believe this album is what started that and what kicked that off because when you hear bands like thin lizzy like kiss like aerosmith all those bands that have live albums they all at one point in interviews talk about the influence of humble pie you know as well as the zeppelins and the deep purples but this live album was their first album to go gold and gold was a big deal back in the early seventies. And when you think of, and and, and actually, actually with kiss too, alive, their first gold album was kiss alive. Um, And it really brought an audience into the band, into listening to the band. And when you hear of bands talking about why they released the live album in the seventies to capture the energy, well, what does this album do for Humble Pie? Because you can listen to all Humble Pie records and there's some good stuff. Eat It, Smokin', uh, the self-titled album and others. And they're all great albums. But when you hear this, it's like, bam, it is, it brings you to the Fillmore. It puts you in the Fillmore and you feel like you're there. Yeah, yeah, you can can feel the sweat around you. (laughs) You really can. You can feel, you can smell it. And you can taste it. And if you can do that in a live album, and one of the things that have connected all these live albums that we've talked to or talked about, you can feel it, you can taste it, you can smell it. And every live album that we talked about, Live and Dangerous, Thin Lizzy, Live After Death, Iron Maiden, and this as well. There's something to be said of what makes a great live album, and it has to begin with that. Yeah, I, you know, this, this is really a, a moment... Um, you're talking about four very talented uh, musicians coming together and creating a great work together. Um, I have seen Peter Frampton twice solo and uh, I got, I got to tell you what he is, he is infectious in the way he plays. He looks like he is filled with joy whenever he plays, but when he's singing or when he's playing, um, I saw him on his farewell tour, which I'm pretty sure will be the, the last time he does a bunch of gigs live. Uh, about three years ago and he's he was on top of his game and he's a joy to watch but you have he was a great solo artist you have uh, steve marriott who came from the small faces and the mod scene into this you have greg ridley who uh, came from spooky tooth into this band you have jerry shirley who went on after this to play in fast way which was taking hard rock to another level with with fast eddie clark um and uh so you're talking about people who were independently 
great musicians and they, and they came together here for something that makes me wish that I was at the Fillmore when this was recorded. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, to touch on to the small faces who became the faces with Rod Stewart and Ron, Ronnie Wood, you know, they and himself were so influential too as well and really kind of had the same type of vibe as Humble Pie where they did a lot of covers. They did, you know, uh, Maybe I'm Amazed by Paul McCartney and, you know, a lot of their other stuff, especially their live stuff was taken from blues artists and other artists at that time. But yeah, you, you look at where these members of, where the members of Humble Pie went afterwards. And of course, Steve Marriott, who continued to try to keep the faces, or I'm sorry, Humble Pie together. Um, this is really, you know, kind of ground zero for a lot of what was happening, a lot of what became afterwards this album. So in that, in that way, it is a very historic, it's a, it's a historic album in many ways. It captures Humble Pie, it's their first school record, it's, it's their most popular record, it has their most popular song, and you could probably, like I said, talk about 30 Days in a Hole. Um, it really, I think, influenced bands after that. And then what became of the members once they left Humble Pie and what they were able to do, uh, you know, it speaks for itself. Uh, this is a very important album if you are a rock and roll fan. This is um, this is a quintessential album. If you love live performances and you don't have this album, you can't wait any longer. You got to go listen to it. You got to check it out. And you'll go down a Humble Pie rabbit hole and you'll come out the other end uh, or you'll come back up the rabbit hole, a, a big fan, guarantee it. I, I think that uh, it now has become very important for you to have Peter Frampton on the show. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking about that, how, you know, as time has moved on, unfortunately, he becomes less and less appreciated for who he was as a player um, and, and what he meant to guitar playing and, I think uh, beginning guitar players, whether it's you know people my son's age or younger or a little older, listen to this album, listen to Frampton solo stuff. Uh, just a very unique player. He's kind of along the lines where he became, if you're familiar with Joe Walsh and the way he makes his guitar sing the notes, where you can have someone's voice sing lyrics to that melody that they're playing frampton's very similar to that he makes his guitar sing as walsh did probably even more so uh than walsh um when you think of um do you feel like i do the, the live version um the live album you hear a lot of that and i think a lot of players don't play like that anymore yeah he's his, his uh it's hard to lump him with other players because he has such a defined voice of his own. I mean, yeah. he's, you know, he's, he's on Twitter and he has been at various points, pretty active and he engages with people. He's, if I have a couple of times said something and he's responded to it in a way that makes me think it's him. It's not some management team that's running his social media. So, so I think that should be your goal is get Peter Frampton on the hook. <laughs> that's a good goal. That's a good goal. I, I, I believe in that 100%. Um, <laughs> But yeah, my final thoughts on this is, like I said, this is a quintessential live rock album by a band that is not appreciated enough when you talk about the influential bands of this period. Uh, check out Live at the Fillmore or Rock in the Fillmore, as it's called, Performance Rock in the Fillmore. Uh, it, it's a journey, and uh, don't be 
intimidated by some of the length of the songs, this will this will capture you and this will this you will enjoy it. If you can commit time to watching a movie, you can commit time to listening to this adventure, and you should. You know, that's a great point. Absolutely. If if uh, if you can watch a three hour movie or two and a half hour uh, Avengers movie, you can go in the car, put this in, just drive around, and enjoy it. It's and this, uh, will, this will enrich your soul. <laughs> it will. It will, and appreciate everything that came after this because there's a lot. And, and I always like to get to where things started. I kind of like to keep peeling back that orange. And this is, this is a nice layer to kind of settle in on and appreciate for it for what it is. Um, the energy, the rawness, the journey that is rocking the film more by Humble Pie. With you completely. All right, Rob. Well, thank you very much again for coming on the hook rocks podcast can't wait to do the next one next quarter which is right around the corner but these are always a treat to do if you haven't checked out episodes with rob and what we've talked about uh some of the ones uh, of of late that have been been on was the last one in october iron maiden live after death before that thin lizzie live and dangerous before that we ranked our top five favorite live albums and this is kind of where this whole idea this quarterly episode came from was how we love live albums so much how we know our listeners love live albums and to kind of reflect on the live albums the great live albums that have come out over the years throughout the decades and pay tribute to them and talk about them it's a topic that makes me very enthusiastic every time uh, we've had a discussion so i really appreciate you having me on all right thank you again rob this is jay scott this is the hook rocks Thank you for tuning in. Stay strong, stay healthy, take care of each other, and we will talk again soon. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.